1: Welcome to the Cultivating Success Podcast. Jeff Sofer and Jonathan Wolfson are brothers and business partners of the top landscaping company, Nature's Experts. Nature's Experts is home to six companies that cater to all your outdoor needs. To learn more about Jeff and Jonathan, simply visit us at www.naturesexperts.com. On the podcast, Jeff and Jonathan bring together other business owners and entrepreneurs to share with you how they developed a prosperous company and how you can too you will gain insights and meaningful advice on creating the building blocks to success and longevity in the entrepreneurial realm. And now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sofer and Jonathan Wolfson.
0: So welcome, Mitch, to the Cultivating Success podcast. Jeff and I are excited to have you here today. Hi, Mitch. Hi, guys. Great to be here with you. It's really great for us to be with you know another person that is really so well respected in the coaching industry, we actually personally have a coach. I know you do a lot of different um, you know business development, and I'd love to pick your brain, see what we can learn. We're actually in the same actual local area, so I'd love to see obviously too how we can connect together. Sounds great, love to do that. So first, I would like to start with I think the you're maybe one of your biggest accomplishments. I don't know if it maybe is, but it just seems like it to me. Is how do you know Tony Robbins?
2: Uh, Well, that's not one of my biggest accomplishments, but I'll tell you the answer anyway. Uh, I know Tony because I became friends with Chet Holmes while building Timeslips Corporation. Back when I was 28 years old, I started a software company. And that company literally was a garage operation uh, with two people and $5,000. And over the course of the nine years that I owned it, we grew it from literally zero to over 250,000 customers with a nationwide network of 350 certified consultants. Wow. And um, Chet uh, happened to be at the time selling advertising space for a legal publication. And if you know anything about Chet Holmes, and if you don't, Chet's deceased, but he's written an incredible book. Over the years, he's educated many people. One of the things he has is an idea called the Dream One Hundred, where you choose your top one hundred prospects, and you shower them with love. You communicate with them regularly. You send them little gifts, and you elevate them in your in your chain of attention, if you will, until you close them.
1: I like that. That's an interesting thing.
2: That's so, cool. Yeah. So I became one of his dream. I thought 100 of something clients. that way. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, you'd be surprised; it works really well. I mean, I have duplicated the process myself, and it's very effective. So I became one of those potential uh, clients for him. It took a year and a half for him to close me, but when he did, I came on board the publication to a roaring success. I mean, it was—we had never really opened up the Los Angeles, California legal market before, and we did uh, by going into that publication and revenue significantly increased and Chet and I's friendship grew even further after that now it turns out that he's flying across coast across country to visit me and and I flew to Las Vegas he would fly to Vegas to meet me there and we had a great friendship over the years and then after I sold the company I hired Chet to come in and help me at Sage do sales trainings and, and talk more about how to scale selling and, and sales operations. So he was someone I really respected, number one. And more importantly, he was a great friend. Uh, so later, years later, after I had sold the company, I was now uh, sort of sitting in my little cubbyhole trading options professionally for a couple of years and get a phone call from Chet and he says, hey, uh, could you use some help over here? Can you help me out? And I said, Sure. So I jumped on board and started helping Chet with his company. Uh, Within six months, I was running it. I was the president of the company and now had all six to eight divisions at the time reporting to me. Uh, And then he announced one day, he goes, okay, well, I'm going to be flying out to Canada to meet with Tony Robbins. It's something I've been trying to get done for a long time. Would you be available for a phone call if Tony wants to talk to you? And I said, Tony Robbins? Wow, sure. Yeah, anytime. So it turns out that um, Chet flew back. Uh, I never got the call, figuring maybe it didn't work out or he didn't connect. He goes, No, no, no. Uh, The three of us need to get on the phone together and talk about how we could build a a company together, the three of us. And I said, Great. And so Thursday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern time, for the next six months, most Thursday nights, I was on the phone with Chet and Tony, and we were trying to brainstorm exactly what this business would look like. Uh, we finally figured it out and we announced it and uh, filled the stadium in, at the Mirage Hotel, the the uh, the, the, the old
1: st- hotel in Las Vegas.
2: The old hotel in Las Vegas. We filled the convention center there with 550 attendees. Uh, and I think we were selling those seats for $10,000 a seat, believe it or not, hmm. Um and we were able to get that whole place filled. And we recorded 56 hours of, of keynotes and videos and trainings. And that became our first product. That became uh, the uh, Ultimate Business Mastery System. And it was with that product and using the techniques that both myself, Chet, and Tony had perfected over the years, we grew that business to nearly $30 million before Chet died. And then it fell apart? At that point, um, let's just say that we were all very, very distraught by the loss of Chet, number one. And also, you know, the timing was really not good. And a lot of what we went through, Chet was sick for 16 months. And honestly, this poor guy really suffered in those last 16 months. And uh, and we were exhausted. I think the team was exhausted. The management team was exhausted. And at that point, I was so really grief struck that I asked Tony if he thought it would be okay if I dropped out and I resigned and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do next. I had, I had nothing. I thought of myself as well. You're a guy with hardly any talent at all. All you know how to do is build companies and run them. But uh, meanwhile, I called Jay Abraham. I don't know if you know who Jay is. Uh, Jay is a friend. And I didn't spent- did you start SlimFast? No. No, that's maybe not the a
1: different day. Jay Abraham.
2: Yeah. Jay's an advisor to many, many businesses. I would call him a rock star. He's certainly senior to me. And and I look up to him in many ways, a mentor in every way. And I called him up and I said, Jay, what do I do next? And he says, I don't know, Mitch, but you got to find a way to teach what you know to others. And I said, okay, Jay, what what does that mean? He goes, I I have no idea, but that's what you got to do. So I thought about it. I started writing and that became my first book. And that book is called The Invisible Organization. And it was all about how to take brick and mortar companies and convert them to fully digital virtual companies. And that's the quick story of how Tony Robbins and I got to work together.
1: So I have a question. So John started it by saying to you, wow, this is probably one of the biggest accomplishments or highlights of your life of meeting Tony Robbins. Your answer was, well, I'll tell you all about it, which you just did. And you also said that's not one of my biggest accomplishments or, quote, highlights of my life. What are your biggest accomplishments?
2: Well, on a, on a business level, my, I think my biggest accomplishment was starting Time Slips Corporation. Okay. Uh, that, to me, I had only ambition, no skills, no experience. I had some common sense, I had some good life lessons and you know a, a solid parental relationship my dad was an entrepreneur growing up. And so I started Time Slips as I mentioned with $5,000 and uh, we ended up selling it for for eight figures. But the more important thing is it wasn't yes, of course we made money, but the more important thing was I learned more about life and business in those 10 years or 12 years or 11 years of running that business both before and after being acquired, than any other time in my life, virtually of any other thing that I did. And of course, you know, when you say what's your greatest accomplishment, I think possibly all of our greatest accomplishments is having a child and raising that child to be an incredible individual. Uh, so I take that as really one of my greatest accomplishments as
0: well. How important so, was it? I'm sorry, John, you go ahead. So I'll, Mitch, follow. I wanted to pick up on something that you said, because I think that you know, it comes at different times for people sometimes. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you had a very interesting reflection point whenever you got to your certain pinnacle with that business and when you sold and then when you transitioned and then you got that money. What was really some of the things that really went through your mind that were just so profound at that particular time that really you think helped guide you to the future that you kind of wish you knew then, Or you wish you knew then, you know, back then?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I reflect back on some of the things that I was concerned about. And, you know, of course, the things that you fear, uh, false evidence appearing real, F-E-A-R. So the things that I was afraid of never really happened. Um, We had started this business on what I would call a technology trick. Uh, We started it with the idea that because we had built a simple piece of technology that enabled our software to pop up over other software products back in the DOS world. And we had figured that we would have competition very quickly because it wasn't that hard to do. And it was clever, but we had no patents, no trademarks. We just did it. Just the first to the market. Exactly. We were first to mm-hmm. the market. But what we were able to do do, and again, had no money to market, we had $5,000 basically, is we were able to use raw enthusiasm and a little bit of uh, finesse in getting PR for the company. And so I was able to um, get in front of a lot of people just because I was ambitious and enthusiastic about what we were doing. And it turns out we didn't have competition for well, almost five years. I mean, it was incredible how, how far behind the competitors were. And again, it might have been a misperception on my part. I mean, I might have completely misjudged that. Later when selling, um, I had become friends with a gentleman named Scott Cook. Scott was the founder of Intuit. And um, Scott and I became friends back when his company was probably five or six million dollars in revenue. And one of the things that Scott and I talked a lot about was the accounting market. Uh, of course, that's the market he was in. He had Quicken at the time, and he, I knew that there was a QuickBooks coming because he had told me, uh, but I was concerned about a time tracking tool inside of QuickBooks and felt like if they had that, it might make us obsolete. So that was one of the fears that, that was. I would say my FEAR
0: was that number one. Number two- Sounds like you really had a good timing and a good sense of when to get out of your business also too, even though you had like, you know, you literally bootstrapped it with $5,000 and grown it into that much of a value company. It seems like you really actually kind of really knew when the right time was to exit. How do you think you really, you really determined that?
2: Um, that's a good question. I think the market helped us determine that. And I, what I mean is that we were starting to bring the company out for sale At a time when software company multiples were expanding pretty quickly. And we had a couple of trial balloons where folks came to us, said, We'd like to buy the company. We'd like to look at the books. We'd like to, you know, sort of go behind the the curtains and see what you got.
0: Which in business, if you have a successful business, people approach people all the time. You know what I mean? Especially once you once you get to a certain level of success or whatever, you know there's these investment banking companies and different people that know you in the industry that either want to bolt on your business right. or they want to acquire you and then 10X you or whatever their particular situation is. So I think you know um, the reason I'm mentioning that is I don't know if everyone realizes, you know as you grow your business, you do gain more attention. And with the attention, you obviously need to listen to a little bit of it. You kind of have an, a sense of what you're quote worth but you also need to have a good sense of what the market is. And you know the market better than those people even do.
2: Right. And the lessons that came from that exploratory period were priceless because we had, we had companies come to us and say, well, you know, you guys are doing great on the top line, but you're barely making any profit. I said, I know, isn't it great? We're hardly paying any taxes either. And, uh, and their response was, well, you know, we really like to buy profitable companies. And I said, okay, well, you know what? Um, Why don't you give me six months, give me two, three quarters, profit won't be a problem because we were prepaying for everything. Um, My thinking was that at the time, if there was a legal way not to pay taxes and instead allocate that money to more marketing or more development or more tools or whatever we needed at the time. I mean, heck, we were vertically integrated. Back then in the software business, if you remember, there was books and discs. We had literally built a disc duplication company to service our own needs, uh, and we were on the verge of buying a print shop, a, a printing company to print our own manuals. We were printing, you know, hundreds of thousands of manuals, and and so we thought, well, you know what? It only makes the business more valuable, and whenever we have downtime, we could take jobs from other companies. And then my response to that at first was, well, I don't want to, I don't like getting unfocused, so I'm not going to buy the print shop. But I did build the vertically integrated disk manufacturing facility because it really served us well. Uh, but to answer your question, after we made the decision to become more profitable, then we be also became more attractive. But then something interesting happened in that period of time. In that period of time, I just jump started my certification program. So what happened was, and again, not to turn this into a long story, but it's kind of interesting in the sense that we didn't know we were building a certification program to grow the value of the company. We simply were trying to solve an operational problem, which was we have too many, we're selling so much software that we have too many calls coming in on the support lines and we had no way to handle them. So we tried different ideas and ideally we started to enroll our own customers to go out into the field and help other customers with Problems with setting up software and fixing issues.
0: How well, did you do that exactly? Like what? How did you enlist them to do that? What was their benefit?
2: I'll tell you how it started. We were very, very, very on top of, as I said earlier, on PR. And in fact, we were a little bit ahead of the time. We were we were giving away thousands of copies of our software to law schools all over the country to seed uh, lawyers into using time slips even before they got out of school. And so, in particular, we also gave our software to many of the technology heads of the, of the bar associations all over the country. And at this point, we had a person calling from, I think it was Los Angeles, who said, hey, your software crashed my computer. It's not, now nothing works. I'm going to sue you, and, which is a typical threat you hear from lawyers. We heard it all the time, quite numb to it at that point. And I said, well, no problem. We'll just take care of it. Uh, where are you located? And then she told me, and I said, oh, my God, I how can I get somebody out there? And I didn't have anybody to send out there. And it was going to be three or four days before I could. And so I said, well, who's in the area and who do I know? Well, I'm a very, I'm an extroverted person, very social. So every time I travel to every city I go to, I would rent a restaurant, a dining room, and I would invite customers. And in particular, uh, those, you know, what I call the power users in the group, I'd send a note to the user base, say, I'm going to be in the Los Angeles area. Uh, you're all invited to dinner. Come have dinner with me. And then we would have these little dinners. I get to know people that way. Well, one of the people I got to know was a a law office, a person who was an administrator for a law office. And I had all of a sudden her name popped into my mind and I said, let me call her and see if she's close enough to this woman Maybe she could help. And it it was amazing. So I did. I called her up and she was thrilled to help me. And she went out there, she fixed the problem in two hours. It was no problem at all. And then she said to me the words that changed my life. She said, And if you ever need anybody else to go out and work with your customers in this area, please let me know. And I thought to myself, Oh my God, well, what would happen if I had two of her? Maybe four, maybe 10, maybe 30, maybe a hundred, maybe two hundred people all over the country. Would be willing to help other customers so that gave me the idea to build certification so then we created a test and we stumbled quite a bit i mean we didn't do it right the first time we had did to get like a
0: fee to help oh the yeah customer
2: or what was their oh yeah we charged was their motivation to do it and how did you find candidates well the finding candidates was easy all we did was send an uh, well at the time we sent out a notice to all of our user base and said, uh, we are looking for the tip top uh, part of our data, our user base. We're looking for the most experienced, most um, skilled people in the user base to take a test. And we're letting you know that 80% of you are going to fail, but the 20% who don't fail, <laughs> we'd like to certify you. And if that works out, we could recommend you to other clients who are looking to hire certified consultants to help them either train their staff or work with the software. So we were overrun with responses. We were making more money selling tests one month than we were selling software. But what ended up happening, it was, it was incomplete. So we stumbled. That first experiment resulted in a bunch of people who were not professional and almost ruined our reputation. Yeah, right. I was going to say, it would tarnish your reputation. Exactly. So we shut the program down. And it took and I called uh, 60 individuals who had bad experiences with these particular certified consultants. And I really tried to understand what went wrong. And I I heard stories that would make your hair stand and stories like people walking in uh, and abusively talking to people in the office, some with hygiene problems, uh, others never showing up, uh, some trying to show up and sell them something else. I mean, it was horror stories, horror stories uh, to the point where clients were, again, dreading to sue. Again, that was their hobby. That's what they did anyway. So I didn't. The most important thing is, is that I listened and I rebuilt the program from scratch based on that feedback. And as a result, we then rolled out the program uh, later. And that scaled in 18 months from zero to 350 timeslip certified consultants, dropping an extra. And remember now, this is back in like in the 90s, in the uh, late 80s, actually, early 90s. It's dropped an extra million in profits to the bottom line and became our third largest sales force right behind retail. So That's amazing.
1: I want to interrupt you real quick. Yeah, sure. Because you've given us so much information that I want to pause for a second because I want to go back to something that you said that I think this will be very important to people that listen. Obviously, you're very accomplished. You've done a lot of interesting things, but I want to go back to something. You said that you had a father who was an entrepreneur, And you made reference to it very quickly, but it seems as though that really made a difference in who you were going to be shaped to be and how you were going to do business and make money. So you can talk about all the accomplishments and everything, but to people, how important was that to have somebody, whether it be a dad or someone in your life, your case, it was your father, that uh, had such an effect on you? And what? how large of an effect was it on you with everything you've accomplished.
2: Yeah, it's hard to measure. I think it was significant. Yeah. I mean, when I was a little boy, uh, my dad would wake me up uh, early on a Sunday morning at 5.30 in the morning and says, come on, we're gonna sell candy on the streets of New York. And mm. uh, we'd basically get in the car and along the way, uh, as we drove downtown Mott Street, Manhattan, we'd find a door or a plank of wood and pull out two saw horse- horses from the trunk, set up a table, Put baskets and and on in Easter in particular, we would sell, we would sell sixty to hundred baskets on the streets in Manhattan, which were candy baskets all tied up with with colored paper. So I was a salesman. I sold as much as my dad did, and then later I worked for him uh, as a salesman selling as well. So my dad, and by the way, I, my dad and my mom, they were what, what I would call a average to lower middle-class family. We were not wealthy at any level. My friends, by the way, got brand new Firebirds and Corvettes when they turned 17. And I got a watch, which was great, but you can't really pick up girls or drive with a watch. So I bought my own car for $625, which was a green four-door used Pontiac Tempest. Not quite as impressive, if you will.
1: Yeah, sounds like your dad was a promoter and taught you to be one.
2: He was. One quick story about my dad, because he opened up a series of candy stores all over Manhattan. One of the things I remember one day and I was maybe 11 or 12, they're just finishing up the uh, construction in the store and they're and he was a nut roaster. He would buy wholesale cashews and almonds and he would roast them in the store and sell them fresh. So I noticed they were putting the roaster in the front of the store and not in the back with all the other industrials type, type stuff. I know like, what you're going to say. Right. So the next week we come back and it's, it's seven 30 in the morning and he loads up the roaster with, uh, with raw pistachios and fires it up. I said, dad, what are you doing? There's nobody here. He goes, yeah, wait about 30 watch, minutes.
1: Watch. That's right.
2: Right. And now the vent went on and now the roaster was roasting and all, and the aroma of yep. Roasted nuts was was yep. streaming through the streets of Manhattan. We had a didn't line. even need
1: to. Like I said, he was a promoter. He was. That's a promoter. That's right. So, do you have you ever heard of Morrow's Nuthouse?
2: Uh, no, never heard of
1: Morrow's. Those, those were candy and nut stores in malls throughout that time. Okay. Morrow's Nuthouse and a lot of them. And so, my uh, dad also had a few of those stores, and so I'm very familiar with the candy and nut situation.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, maybe you'll the remember roaster, Strike
1: something with me or yeah. I'm nuts. One of the two.
2: Exactly. Maybe <laughs> you'll remember a store in Manhattan called economy candy. Does that ring a bell?
1: Oh, I'm not from Manhattan, but I've been there so many times, but no, I've never. I never, ever uh, saw that store.
2: So My dad and his brother built Economy Candy, the largest candy store. Economy Candy. Economy Candy. And um, how do you think that
0: store would do now? Economy Candy. I'm guessing you buy large quantities of candy at low prices. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, my dad's family was from Turkey. And so we were bringing in something called Halava. Oh, yes, of course. Nobody really had that in the United States.
1: It's a Jewish thing.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And so we were selling Kalevov from Economy Candy. By the way, to this day, Economy Candy is still there and it's online. So you can order all the <laughs> old
0: candies from the 50s and 60s. Oh, and is 70s. that funny? Yeah. That's funny. One thing they can't sell is the aroma from the roasted no, nuts they can't. Canada.
1: That's right. They can't right. sell
0: that. No, they can't. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think you can make a scented candle now.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: if, if it works for you, then Absolutely.
1: I think it's amazing. Uh, you know, I can tell just by the, the short time that we've been talking, you know, I can tell all of the real skills that you have and how you're able to spot and understand certain things in business and spot when something's a success, just like John said, you sort of knew when to get out. You know, that's a very uh sharp thing to be able to know. And I think that it's very neat that, you know, you have that sort of skill along with being a really good salesperson and a really good promoter. Usually you don't see all of that within one personality or one person. So I think that's awesome.
0: Thank it's you. Really, I was really impressed when listening to your conversation before about how you were going through the process of finding your different salespeople that were actually customers turned into a certification, turned into advocates, turned into helping customers. Yeah. And I think that, that I really would like to talk more about that because I think that really can help people because... Sure that was something that you are looking at your pool of resources. You didn't particularly have a lot of money. You didn't have a process yet. You couldn't go hire people. Right. What did you have? Right. You had a product right? that was digitally based and you had to market it to try to sell it, which probably ate up lots of the costs. Mm-hmm. And then you, like you said, you figured out, I, I couldn't handle all these phone calls. But then if I handle all these phone calls, Then I really don't make any money. So then, what do I do next? So next, you thought, well, what do I have? I have customers, right? And from these customers, how can these customers become raving fans of the business and make money and still use my product and become certified? So I think that you know maybe I think that really should be something that we we speak about. Well, should we speak about,
1: we should speak about
0: how he looked at what he does have rather than what he doesn't have. Well, I'd like to get his opinion. You know, that particular situation. I think the reason why I outlined it, how I did was just to specify exactly what he did. But I'd like for Mitch to really explain now in the future how he sees that to be like a good tool in business, right moving forward of just using the resources at hand. A lot of times people, I don't think, remember or think or realize all these different resources they have to help really grow and develop their business. Right. They just think about what they don't have rather than what they do have, what
1: could propel them forward.
0: Oh, I can't hire enough salespeople. Yeah. I, I can't hire enough people to yeah. answer the phone or whatever. I was shot down with this one idea by this particular pitch I was
1: making, you know, stuff like that. They they harp on stuff like that.
2: Do you agree with that, Mitch? I do. And it's been sort of something that I recognized um Uh, relatively early in my adult life, I seem to be able to spot things and find ways to use them a little bit better than most others. And that's why the title I've been given is business growth strategists. So yes, I'm a coach. I think my my talent is in finding usually hidden recurring revenue streams in people's companies. Uh, And the way I do that is really sort of what you just said, is I look for what they do have and how they're not using it. And by simply finding an effective way to utilize that, uh, you can unlock massive amounts of revenue in people's companies. Would you like an
0: example? Please. I would love an example for me personally, because, you know, it's really, um, you know, hearing these stories, you know, the point of this podcast, the point of, you know, connecting with you, Mitch, is, you know, for us all together to learn and to see how we can apply things to ourselves because we're specifically in business right now, and we're managing our own set of problems, trials, tribulations, profits, all of the above. You are doing the same thing also too. And through different people's experiences, you have to take the information and apply it particularly to yourself, how it actually can help you. How Your, your story is its own story. It actually can't help me at all because I'm not in the technology industry and it's not 20 years ago. So what can I do with that information? I actually, it's interesting, you know, I like to specify things that, that resonate with me because I'm not typically thinking about what you're thinking or what you're actually telling. I'm thinking, this is how I'm hearing the information. This is what it's actually making me feel. This is what I think something that how we can apply it in our own particular way or whatever. Right. That's why I really fixated on it. So I'd love to hear an example from you. Sure.
2: And this is a very common example you won't believe how many businesses out there have what I would call a process that's more valuable than their actual company. And so one of the things that I do when I look at a company is I look at how they're doing what they're doing. And nine out of 10 times or eight out of 10 times, maybe, or four out of five times, uh, I am able to show them how to license that process to other companies who would like to scale rapidly based on what they already figured out. Forgetting about
0: or or different than a franchise?
2: Different than a franchise. So, franchise is an option. Uh, And I've written extensively about that in this book that you could sort of see on my screen here called Power Tribes. Hmm. Um, That's the book where I describe certification and how to build a culture based tribe certification program. But in there, we talk a little bit about this idea of uh, looking at a company. And and I'll give you an example there's a, a company that does a great job of staffing and they have a staffing company. Well, the staffing company was doing four or $5 million a year right. and they were like knocking their brains out to do four or $5 million a year. And I took a look at what they were doing. And I said, um, do other companies do this? Do other companies do do what you're doing here? And what about that? Do, do other companies do that too? Or turns out they had invented a lot of very cool stuff. And the reason they weren't you know wildly profitable in growing at two or three hundred percent was because they were inexperienced and were missing some of the tools available to companies that are larger than they were. But that process was so valuable that we were able to take that and package it and find other staffing companies that wanted to license the process. And in some cases, we were able to do so either through, a a consulting relationship or through a literal licensing relationship. And in some cases, in other companies, we start there and then we build a certification program
0: around that. Does that make sense? Makes sense. It does. You know, I think it kind of is. So how I take that information is, you know, certification used to be a bigger thing than it is really now. You know what I mean? So like Mm -hmm. there definitely are, are licenses and certifications you have to have in like the trade industry. But I definitely remember, you know, a while back that you know certifications were like such a big Everything. deal yeah. that in you order to that you were yeah. associated with this particular way or process of doing things. And I think now, so you fast forward now, there is a lot of resources, yeah. right, that are available, but they actually aren't really formally processed and packaged together to really make actual value. You know, there's there's infinite value out there on the internet there's infinite conversations like we're having on going on right now that you can find and you have to pull out you know these valuable pieces out of each one of those different things to create this process this certification and i think that people don't realize probably like i mean i bet there's a lot of processes that just aren't formalized and available for people because you know there's a lot of that most businesses in the technology field are looking for like the biggest net that they can cast, right? right. And there's still so much out there yeah. where you took, took this company that does employee staffing or whatever, that there's probably really, really big companies that are really expensive that can help them do the same thing. But there isn't somebody in the middle that can really help these people at an economic standpoint, but it actually does give them clarity and and uh, confirmation of you know what is the best way to take my business to the next level from one to four, four to eight, whatever their particular situation you know, might be or whatever.
2: Well, the, I guess part of what I wanted to make clear is that the word certification is is sort of like the word love. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people under a lot of different conditions. Uh, so if you were to buy a coach certification from a high-end coach. I know one coach in particular charges $18,000 to be certified in his quote-unquote process. And I, you know, God bless him. I think it's amazing that you can get that because when you're done, you get an eight by 10 certificate suitable for framing uh, that you can hang right behind your It doesn't include window. the frame? It does not include the frame. So, and no frame, just this suitable for framing. Eight by 10 certificate. You have to use your own ink. You get it printed <laughs> and everything, you know, probably run off on the... You have to buy the toner. Yeah. yeah. No, but <laughs> the point I'm making is that there's no business model there. And when I build a certification program, we are building everything because we know that the people who are getting certified are typically coaches, they're technical people. They're people who, who love what they do, but they're probably not really good at marketing, selling, or or creating lead flow for themselves. So my programs build that in... So there's two reasons why. Number one, so that they will be successful. And so that number two, we've created a recurring revenue scenario. Next year, they'll want to pay for it again because the ROI was anywhere from 5 to 20x on being certified with this particular company. So that's the sort of things I do. And in general, we're finding anywhere from one to eight streams of recurring revenue inside of a company after certification.
0: That's really a smart, you know, angle. I think, and I think that's something that you know, smart business owners that are out there that you know have a decent sized business, you know, there's also reflecting on yourself. You know, by going through this process with you, Mitch, I would assume that you learn a lot about your own business. Oh yeah, business opportunities not just the one that you're trying to create with this, you know, yep. course or certification. Oh yeah. but you know, you're buttoning up processes that might not have been exactly what they should have been and you're letting certain things go. So it is actually an interesting reflection point as a business owner to really go through something like that to be like, "All right, this I'm going to, you know, stamp, sign, seal and be like, "All right, this is our process or whatever." So- but then actually allow that and again in a year we're going to update this process as we're going to all continue to learn more things or whatever. I really think that's really smart. One
1: thing that I don't think that you uh, have to update, and I want to hear what you think about this. You know, there's we, we've talked about sales. We talked about your dad being a promoter. You you learned to be a promoter. You're a good salesperson. You said that, but you know, salespeople usually leave people with a feeling, and people don't necessarily remember everything that you say, but they remember the feeling. And so how do you scale that? How do you scale being a really, really good salesperson and being able to get paid for people that want to be as good of a salesperson as you? The answer I would give you is you get people in front of you who aspire to be salespeople, really, really good salespeople, and they get a feeling from you. They then want that feeling and you have to teach them how to do that and how to handle that and how to evoke that from other human beings. And I don't think it's that hard to teach people to do because I think that when you're a really good salesperson, because you can give a person that sort of feeling, I think it inspires them and makes them feel like they're going to be someone who can actually do that or not. So say you had 100 people in front of you, Mm -hmm. I would say 50 to 70 of those people would get that feeling from this wonderful salesperson that he'd give to them like they want that. And then those 50 or 70 people can be trained how to do that to somebody that they want to sell something to. What do you think of that?
2: It makes a lot of sense. Uh, We had a very specific approach um, when I was hiring, when I was building the recruiting division for Tony uh, and for Business Breakthroughs. He invoked the feeling definitely well of course he does but more importantly we don't typically hire by skill or accomplishment we hire by what i would call um emotional makeup mm-hmm. so we're doing psychological screening to make sure we're getting the right person and uh, we have a series of i would call steps that we take to to take someone through a, a very simple straightforward interview and what we're really looking for is we're looking for two things. We're looking for really nice people that have a burning desire to succeed, but they don't have the tools yet. We know that. So we give them the tools and we're looking for, I think of it in, in, in two ways. Very important is the understanding that when you sell something, you're not doing something to another person, you're doing something for another person. And that's a very important thing to remember. And Part of the education is to make sure that your salespeople really fully and truly understand the value of the product. I mean, to the point of religion, to believe in the product to the level that they feel a moral obligation to make sure the customer has the product. And if for some reason that customer doesn't buy, that they feel like they failed, not as a salesperson, but because they didn't do the right thing. Because they know that by selling that product, they are going to affect that individual and his whole family and maybe many of the families that work for that individual as well.
0: And you're, you're really getting yeah. into perspective. You know? There's mm-hmm. really a certain perspective when you're talking about the sales, product, service you know, process of you know, what kind of language you really need to speak to your customer so they actually understand where you're coming from, how you're driving your value the service that you're providing for them, why it's going to either save them time, stress, energy, or money, whatever that might be.
2: All of that plus system. systems. Yeah. Everything must be, there must be a system behind all of this. And that system is never something that you create, roll out, and are done. It, it evolves every single week. So in my process, when we work with salespeople, we are literally um, debriefing every week. And we are rewriting the actual script every single week. So we, we learn something every week from someone on the team who had a really bad or a really good call. And then we, we dissect that and figure out what could we do to enhance the current process today. And I, think we,
1: that nothing, I think that nothing happens until someone sells something in this world. So I think that the more that you can teach people how to sell whatever it is, whether it's mm-hmm. an idea, whether it's a product, whatever it is, if you can really teach someone, which you can, if they can get a feeling from you, if you are someone who's a very good salesperson and a good promoter, I think that you can empower people with sales because the truth is you sell everything. You sell yes. on yourself, you sell relationships, you, know, you sell everything that you're involved with. That's and true, true. Uh, I really think that how to become a success and how to be successful is mastering how to sell yourself your feelings, whatever it is, to evoke things from people, to get them to either do what you want or buy into what you're saying, and then properly and professionally handle what you're doing with your business that way. To
0: properly execute on sales, you have to do systems. You have to have systems to be able to execute what you're actually wanting to do. Right, and Jeff, I've been sitting here wanting to just ask you here. Yes. What is systems even? What's the acronym for that? Well, you just said it a few minutes well, ago. Well, no, please. Do You want to say it together? No, please. Okay. Please take it. Well,
1: it's, uh, I don't remember this actual minute, but I, I know it's saving yourself stress, time, energy, and money. There you go. It took me a minute. I blanked out for a second, but
0: uh, no, the reason why I. Uh,
1: I you've it. given me such a feeling on selling to me what you're saying that I was. Yeah. I well, was you know, together. listen.
0: Selling is a, is part of systems, it you know. Is. It's part part of saving yourself time and energy and money. Is you want to make sure that you're valuable every single second. It
1: is, and it's funny that you bring that up. Uh, and I'll I'll tell you this too, Mitch. You know, so John likes to think in a very logical manner, and it has served him and the two of us really, really, really well. And I am logical to some certain degree, of course. But I really am about uh, more emotions and feelings and all of those things with sales and how I handle myself really all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, I have found success, real success in evoking that with people. and it's not like I go around being an evangelist, you know, getting people to buy into everything. I'm just being myself. But I think if you speak from a place of facts, you speak from a place of really being true and genuine to people and having some charisma, I really do think that uh, people are affected by that because all human beings most really want to be involved with people that are nice and really will, of course, solve a problem for them. And like you said, doing something for them, not to them. Right. And I think when they get that feeling from you, I think it really helps make someone open to want to either buy into what you're saying or buy your product.
2: I totally agree. And again, I think what you said before is important. The training part of this uh, is more important than the experience part. I would rather have a nice person who has a great personality, who has a great disposition, who psychologically tests as someone who has a good balance uh, between what I would call being aggressive enough to ask for the close, but strong enough to not uh, under the right circumstances. Right. So there's that balance that when we could test for that. So I, I, that's not a problem, but if it's too much in one way or the other, you have someone who is really nice and clients will fall in love with, but they'll never close a deal. Or you have someone who is more suited to be on the phones for a one call close in 15 minutes with, they're just really going for it every time. Uh, and again, there's no problem with either, but you just need to know who you're dealing with, and then you need to know how to train them and then you need to have systems in place that help them refine their skills and make yeah there's a lot of people with a lot of knowledge that can go yeah. in and I mean they can educate
1: the customer, and they do a fantastic job of it a lot better than maybe I could yeah, but yeah. to sort of you know get uh something out of someone as far as how you touch them, you know with your words and your charisma and your say magnetism whatever you want to whatever adjective you want to use that
0: gets people to buy agreed so mitch i want to ask you one more question because i really want to i feel like we've talked a lot about the present or about the past i think we've talked about the present and i think let's talk a little bit about the future now yeah sure. so what are some different new initiatives strategies that you really foresee for growing your business
2: well, uh, I'm in an interesting place um, at this time in my life. I have this beach right outside my doorway that is uh, calling me every morning to come out and spend time. And, um, and I live in a beautiful part, as you know, part of the air, of the world here. So I'm not. And I'm at a stage where I'm not really. Uh, I'm not in the chase as much as I used to be, if you know what I mean. Uh, so I'm balancing my life as much as I can now. I'm very stimulated by working with clients and love doing that. But at the same time, I want to enjoy my life. And maybe as some say the finer things in life. So, so what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to do something that I've always had a hard time with, which is backing out of my own business, which is delegating more, uh, which are finding skilled people to take the place of, of some of the functions of what I've done before. I recently started another software company. Uh, why? Because I had to. I mean, you find problems that are unsolved and you just know that you have to solve them. And so I did. I started it 18 months ago and it's starting to scale nicely now. And I'm now hiring salespeople and I'm now hiring a marketing person or uh, and a PR person, because these are the things that I needed before to be successful, but I don't want to do them all myself. And instead, I want to have talent in place and I want to be able to have the freedom to know that the business will continue whether or not I'm sitting here staring into a computer screen or not.
0: Right. Uh, so
2: I think it's important to learn to delegate. And I think it's important to understand really what your time is worth. And and when I say worth, I don't mean in dollars sometimes, if you know what I mean. So,
0: yeah. Very true. I think that's all really good, Mitch. I think that, you know, so what would you recommend to all the listeners then or a good strategy of growing your business. You've grown a business in all different times. You've transitioned, you've moved, you've pivoted. Now you're actually going into the technology industry again for the second time or whatever. What real strategy do you actually have that's different now than it was then, or is it the same strategy?
2: Well, the starting strategy is to find a problem that no one solved or that no one has solved sufficiently and decide whether or not it's a it's a good business and whether it's worth solving so you may find problems that are that are not solved but they're not worth solving uh, the market's not big enough the problem itself is is a short term problem it won't last it won't be it won't endure into the future so i think you need to first examine what the problem is and whether or not it makes sense to solve it then when you decide to solve it i think step 2 would be to decide if the market is there or not and who else is already doing it? So if there's nobody else doing it, that is not a good sign. <laughs> that means that nobody else has thought of uh, entering the market, which means it might not be a profitable market or they it might be littered with failures. So what you are, we are looking for is you're looking for you know a, a number of competitors that have taken an approach that might be different than yours. And I just did that. That's the software that I've created is for coaches. And I created it because my whole style of working with clients is holding them accountable and tracking their stats and goals every single week. So we apply strategy, we we dream of the future, we build systems, but we must hold people, I must hold my clients accountable. And there's no software that I found to do that. So I had to build it. And once I built it, other coaches started wanting to use it too. And now we're scaling that and by with the help of other coaches and coaching organizations. So the point I'm making is, you know, I could have built it for myself and just left it alone. But once I saw there was a need, I then decided to make it available to others. And that's where you get a sense of whether or not it's worth pursuing. Now, one of the things I will say is that a lot of people spend money too much money first on a product before they know there's a market. And that has been a mistake in my life as well. Um, I did build a product that had no market several times in my life, and I don't advise it. Uh, I prefer to see you sell something first. And then, once you know there's a market and you have right. customers who are eager to buy it, then build it. That's okay right. too.
0: Mitch, I think you have given a lot of really unbelievably great advice to everyone today and myself. I really appreciate your time. That you spent with us here. I definitely know that we will definitely be connecting with you more. I think that you have a really great perspective on, uh, you know, business and opportunity and just different ways of looking at what you already currently have. So I think it would really be great if you explained to everyone how they can get in touch with you, just in case they want to connect with you. I think that you have a lot to offer with really any type of business person really finding more resources within what their current organization is that they might not even realize the value that they actually have in it already?
2: Of course, probably the best way is to go to MitchRusso360.com. That's sort of a a site that has all of my properties there, including the ability to schedule a call with me or to reach out via email, MitchRusso360.com.
1: Mitch, is your dad still alive or is he gone?
2: My dad's gone. My mom is still alive. She's about to turn 90.
1: Well, I will tell you, I bet your dad is super proud of you.
2: Well, thank you. My dad, I know my dad was very proud of me before he left and I'm sure he still is. He still is. I'm sure. Very nice talking to you.
0: Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on the Cultivating Success Podcast. Definitely would like to have you on again. I still have tons and tons and tons of questions that I'd like to to speak to you about for sure. Absolutely. Well, thanks guys. Appreciate it. Sure. Thanks Mitch. Bye-bye.
2: Okay. Okay. Bye. This has been the
1: Cultivating Success Podcast with Jeff Sofer and Jonathan Wolfson. To learn more about Jeff and Jonathan and their businesses, visit www.naturesexperts.com.